Welcome to Bits of Gold, episode 122. Today's episode is all about how to land your dream job without applying online. Welcome back to another episode of the Bits of Gold podcast. If you're new here, first off, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Second, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. More subscribers help attract... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. More amazing guests help better serve you with amazing content on how to live with purpose. And first, a message from our sponsor. Now let's get to it. Are you sick and tired of applying to jobs with no luck? What if I told you there was an easier way, a better way to land an amazing job without ever even applying online? Well, that's exactly what we're talking about on today's episode. Today, my guest is Austin Belkak, founder of Cultivated Culture, where he teaches people how to land jobs they love in today's market without traditional experience and without ever even applying online. In 2013, Austin graduated from college with a biology degree, terrible grades, and a job in healthcare that paid him next to nothing. Two years later, he scored interviews at Google, Microsoft, and Twitter, and accepted a job for Microsoft with a $70,000 raise. And he did all of that without traditional experience and without applying online. Today, he teaches people the system he used to help thousands of people land jobs at Google, Microsoft, Salesforce, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Twitter, Uber, and more. If you are ready to land your dream job, this episode is for you. And now let's welcome Austin to the show. Austin, welcome to the Bits of Gold podcast. Dan, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I am really excited to have you on the show. I'm sure like many people found you via LinkedIn and following along a lot of your content. Love a lot of what you're putting out into the world. and just excited to share your story today. I'm excited to be here. And uh, that's the beauty of creation, right? Whether it's a podcast or LinkedIn or anywhere else, being able to identify and connect with folks who are, are like-minded, like we were just talking about in the pre-chat uh, or the pre-show rather, like that's one of my favorite parts of this whole setup. So I'm grateful our paths crossed and I'm excited for this conversation. Absolutely. Maybe just to kick this one off, tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do. Yeah. So in a nutshell, I run my own business now. And the whole goal of that business is to teach people how to land jobs they love without applying online. That premise was completely derived from my experience in the job search, graduating from college, feeling totally unprepared for the real world, kind of feeling like our education system did me a bit of a disservice in terms of preparing me for what I was stepping into and having to figure out this whole process on my own because I was originally you know, interested in science and STEM. I had a biology degree and I quickly realized that my dreams of using that to be a doctor weren't going to come to fruition. So I had to find a different path for myself. And given the switch I wanted to make from healthcare into tech, not many people were willing to give me a shot based on my non-traditional background through the traditional channel. So essentially, what I mean by that is those traditional processes that people tell us, you know, tweak your resume, tweak your cover letter, apply for jobs online, rinse and repeat. That didn't work for me at scale. You know, we're talking 300 plus apps and, and no real results to show for it. So I had to find a different way to get in the door at these companies that 
I deeply wanted to work at that I was super excited about. And so through that whole process, I developed my own system for making that happen. I eventually got in the door at Microsoft. I also interviewed with Google and Twitter and a bunch of other places, accepted the job at Microsoft, worked there for five years. And I had plenty of people come out of the woodwork from school mostly and ask me how I did that. And after you know the 20th, 30th person asked, I decided there might be something here. And so I started Cultivated Culture and that was about six years ago today. So the rest is kind of history and we can dive deeper into whatever part of that is, is most interesting to you. So with, yeah, it's, that's absolutely amazing. And you hit a lot of points that I'm very excited to dive into. With Cultivated Culture, when you first started it, what was your main service or offering that you were offering your customers? Yeah, so it was really interesting. I was just talking to a friend of mine about this because when I, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur and specifically I wanted to be an entrepreneur with an online business because of this whole idea of scale and passive income, right? And all this stuff that you see in, in the ads on the YouTube videos that we're all checking out and being served. And <laughs> that's where I started. I started with a flagship online course. I did all of you know that stuff and it generated revenue. Don't get me wrong. It, it was you know bringing in a little bit, which was great on the side, but it wasn't enough to really take me to the place that I ha had wanted to go to, that I dreamed of getting to. And so I had to kind of make the hard decision to go into coaching, which is never really something that I wanted to do. For some people, career coaching really gives them energy or just coaching in general gives them energy, gets them excited when they wake up in the morning. I'm not that person. That is much more of an energy drainer for me, but it was something that we needed to do in order to facilitate growth in the other areas of the business and create that runway. So that's actually where I, I quote, started if we're talking about the product and service that led to Cultivated Culture actually becoming a full-fledged business that I could take full-time. And uh, having the confidence in coaching was one of the major reasons that I felt like I could take this leap and take it on full-time and, and leave my full-time job. So that's kind of where it started was with coaching, but now we're, we're headed back more into that scale direction. So it's, it's been a little bit of a roller coaster. In terms of the coaching piece, did you, I assume people were coming to you asking like, can you help me get this job? Exactly. So at that point, I had been creating a lot of content, like what I spent pretty much the entire time while I was working full-time I spent most of that focused on building the audience and building the foundations. In other words, I wanted to have all of my funnels set up and I wanted to have an audience that I could monetize. And I had the luxury of a stable paycheck. So I didn't have to immediately ask for people's money. Instead, I could over-index on the value that I delivered to my audience. And then when the time was right, I could make this ask. So I did do some initial career coaching on the side of my nine to five just to validate this model. And most of those people who are my initial clients were folks who actually weren't even coming and asking me for coaching. They were asking me questions. And I actually think this is a big area of opportunity for a lot of entrepreneurs, solopreneurs. When we start out, we tend to view everybody as somebody who's in our audience, not necessarily as a prospect or a customer. And for many people, that transition from audience member to customer can be really difficult from the standpoint of it being a mental hurdle. So you get all these DMs and emails, people asking you questions about their situation. And I got totally burned out on that after a certain point. I had been giving and giving, giving for years. And I was talking to my coach slash therapist and she was like, well, why don't you like start charging these people for your time if they want a deeper answer to this question? 
So that's actually what I started doing. Everybody who came through my DMs or my email, I would reply to them and just say like, hey, I'm totally happy to help. Are you looking for quick advice or comprehensive help here? And for anybody saying quick advice, I, I just had a whole list of resources and I would just link them out to a resource. But if they asked for comprehensive help, I would send them my hourly rate. And I started out with a set amount of clients I could take on, right? I was like, okay, at this price point and given my schedule, I'm going to take on a max of three clients. And when I hit that next for the next three, I upped my rates and I upped the amount of clients I took on slightly. So I take on four clients, maybe at, you know, instead of 50 bucks an hour, 75 bucks an hour. And I just kept doing that until I essentially hit a ceiling. And over the course of my coaching, now I've been doing it for several years now, coming up on two years on my own. I went from, I think that $50 an hour mark to 500 bucks an hour with career coaching. And then for LinkedIn coaching, 1297 an hour. And that's all just through that one simple process. So it's pretty powerful. But yeah, most of the folks weren't even asking me for coaching. They were just asking questions. Wow, that's amazing. Did you like go to a program to learn how to be a coach or like how to be the best coach or you sort of just led through your intuition and like your prior experience? Definitely more of the, the latter. I just found that and what I found with many things is that reps in practice with an intentional process for reflection and analysis tends to be the best way to learn. And for sure, you know, there are probably coaching programs out there that are super valuable that that would have helped me be a better coach. But given what I had on my plate and given the fact that things were working as is, you know, we would have post coaching surveys and all this other stuff. And everybody seemed to be getting a lot of value out of the program. We were helping a lot of people get jobs. To me, it felt like the best way to level up was to just keep doing, keep taking action, keep getting that feedback and that data rather than diverting away from that and, and taking energy and putting it towards this coaching program, which may or may not really get where we're at, what we're doing, who our audience is, how I want to run the business, all this other stuff. So it was very much more a lot of self-teaching and, and iteration versus going out and taking somebody else's program and building off of that. That makes a lot of sense. You land this job at Microsoft. I'm assuming like that was your dream job at that moment. At what point did you decide or did you recognize like, hey, I want to leave this business and I have something more exciting I want to pursue? At what point did you decide that was something you want to take the jump at? Yeah. So there's kind of two layers here. The first is that I had always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So if we go back to that little recap I told of my college experience, you know, academia was never for me. I just really couldn't get behind this whole system of going through specific steps and then regurgitating that information and getting a grade and that grade dictating so much of your life, you know, ostensibly according to all these folks. And then so much of those classes not really being relevant to what I wanted to do. I'm really bad at investing in things and getting passionate about things that I don't care about, which I think is, is true for many of us. But especially for me, you know, these courses, if it wasn't something I was interested in, I consistently got C's and D's in it. But if it was something I was interested in, I got really good grades. And so I just was really frustrated with that whole process. And then I looked ahead to the corporate world. Growing up, you know, my dad was an entrepreneur, and my mom worked in the corporate world. And consistently, the narratives that I would hear were very different. And, you know, my mom was constantly dealing with office politics and bureaucracy and the red tape and all this stuff. Those are problems that I didn't see myself being really good at, not necessarily really good at handling, but being willing to handle for, you know, the 30 years that, that we spend working or, or however long. I also didn't want to wait until I was, you know, 60 plus or whatever to be doing 
stuff that I really enjoyed. And so for those reasons, I entered the professional world wanting to be an entrepreneur, but I also realized that I didn't have the skills, right? I wish that I had a background like yours where I got started and fired up projects and started businesses when I was much, much younger. But in college, I didn't have that confidence and I didn't really have the drive to go out there and do what it takes to start a new business. I, I didn't have the confidence to be vulnerable. I told myself I didn't have the time. And so I didn't end up doing those things until after I graduated. But what I realized was that, okay, I don't have this experience yet, but if I'm going to build it, I might as well build it in places that align with where I want to go. And also that can put me in a really good position to make the jump if I want. So I looked at what I eventually wanted to be doing, which is effectively what I'm doing now, you know, running an online business with digital products, digital services, you know, not having to be in an office. Then I said, okay, well, in order to do that, I need to be really good at digital marketing, sales, things of that nature. So let me get into that space. Let me get into tech and let me work in a marketing or sales job. And if I'm going to be doing that, you know, let me work at the best place possible, Google, Microsoft, this type of place. And then I basically, that was my North Star. And then I worked backwards to understand what experience do I need to get in the door there. So I eventually got in the door at Microsoft, as we talked about, which was amazing. And I had a fantastic team, fantastic culture. Some of the best years of my life were spent at that job. But eventually I kind of got to a ceiling where I never aspired to be a manager. For me, that's not aligned with my skill set and also the stuff that I really enjoy doing. We've had employees at Cultivated Culture, I think managing as a founder CEO is very different than managing in middle management at a corporation. And that's just not ever something I saw myself doing. So I realized once I reached the top of the IC ladder, there wasn't really anywhere for me to go if I didn't want to be a manager. And on top of that, I also had the foundation that we talked about, right? I had my website was up and humming. We had some really good SEO going in and bringing in traffic. I had a great audience on LinkedIn. I had validated some of our products in the early stages. And I thought, you know, look, I don't really have anywhere else to grow into at Microsoft. I've been here for five years. It's been an amazing experience, but I need a new challenge. And so it was really a combination of all those factors that made, you know, October 2020 the, the right time. And, and especially the work from home deal as well made it easier to just transition right into to doing my own thing. So yeah. All those factors kind of came to a head in, in October 2020. And that's when I decided to make the leap. And that was, you know, we're coming up on two years now. That's amazing. What a journey. Would you say most of the people you work with are coming to you to help them secure a new job? Or is it, I guess you offer a few different services. You have courses that they could take and then you have coaching. And then are there other services that you offer? Yeah, exactly. So most of the people who come to us are looking to get into some sort of new job that is offering them something that they don't have now. That looks different for everybody, right? Some people are like, I wanna work with you because I wanna get a job at Google. And that's cool, you know, we, we help a lot of people do that. Other folks are telling me, you know, I wanna get a very specific job in a very specific space. There aren't that many opportunities and I wanna make sure that I'm one of the people who breaks in. Awesome, we help people with that too. It really depends on what folks are looking for, but mostly people are coming to me when they've tried the traditional process and it's kind of failed them. So. They see all these other career coaches, recruiters, resume writers talking about the online application process or the traditional process. They go through that. They do all the stuff that they're, quote, supposed to do, and they just don't see the results they want to see. Those are the majority of folks who come to me. You know, we typically hear that, you know, I hired this person to do my resume or I hired this person to help me and nothing really came out of that. And I saw your stuff 
and what you've been able to do. And now I want to work with you. So those are most of the folks that, that end up in our audience. And we have a variety of products. We have from the low end, we have a bunch of SaaS tools that score people's resumes compared to job descriptions. We have a resume builder. We have a bunch of you know, SaaS tools that you can all get for like 10 bucks a month. We have some courses that range from, I think the lowest price is like 80 bucks up to you know, a couple thousand bucks. And then we have the, the coaching itself, which I've actually transitioned out of now on the career side. We hired uh, an awesome, awesome person to handle all the career coaching now, and he is crushing it. And that's amazing for me because I can still capitalize on that opportunity, but it's not an energy drainer for me anymore because I'm not doing it. That's awesome to hear, especially that you have the, the self-awareness to recognize that that's something that you don't want to be doing, that it's an energy drainer and that like, hey, I'm going to bring someone on to, this is what they get energy from doing and I'm going to let them excel at that. So kudos to you for, for having the self-awareness to even make that happen. That's super kind of you to say, but it's easy for me to say that on the podcast here, right? But that actually was like a multi-year process of really trying to push the rock up the hill by myself for way too long. Like, at first, it was, you know, nobody else can do this as well as I can. It's my system. Like, nobody else is going to be able to learn it and all the nuances. That was a story I was telling myself. And mm -hmm. then hiring somebody and bringing on, essentially doubling the size of the business from a, an employee standpoint and not wanting to be a manager was something I had to grapple with. So there, was, there were a lot of layers of self-doubt and sort of, I guess, not arrogance, but maybe something similar to that where, you know, it's my system and nobody else can do it. Like those types of self-limiting beliefs and narratives were very present. And it, it actually, the first time I had spoken to somebody about hiring a coach was like two years prior to, or a year and a half prior to when I actually decided to do it. So it's great to talk about on the podcast now and be like, yeah, like we did it. It all worked out, but it was definitely a journey to get to that point, to be able to let go and, and put that trust into somebody else. And I'm super glad that I did it, but I also don't want to make light of that decision and how difficult it was. Yeah, I'm sure. So would you say most of the people that are coming to you are at a point where, would you say most of your customers, it's like their first time job and they're trying to just crack into the market? Or would you say it's more like mixed in terms of, you know, I know you've given us some clarity around the business, but would you say it's mostly people who are like, this is the first job I'm looking for or one of like early in their career or it's really mixed? Yeah. So I'd say that the vast majority of people who come to us have I would say between like three and eight years of work experience. So we're kind of talking folks who are, they've had an entry level job or two. They're kind of understanding how the real world works now and getting some clarity on what they want to do. Then they're looking to really dial into a, a specific area. So essentially people who come to us, the vast majority of them started out in one field and realized this is not at all what I expected it to be. This is not, you know, I majored in this and I thought it was going to be, you know, this one thing and it turned out to be something totally different. Or they got started in the real world and they got exposed to all these things that were not exposed to in school. Like, I didn't even know that the job that I did at Microsoft existed when I was in college because there was no course on like partnership marketing or even like, you know, what are, what's an account manager? Like, I didn't know what that was in college. So you get exposed to this other stuff and then you start to realize like, oh, there are all these other things that I'm much more interested in than what I thought I was interested in in college just because the scope was so much more narrow. So a lot of the folks who come to us have been working for a little bit of time, a couple of years. They've realized for some reason that they're not where they want to be, whether it's the specific field that they're in, whether it's you know the level that they're at, compensation, title, things of that nature. 
And again, that process, that traditional process is failing them and they need to find a more creative way to get in the door. That is the vast majority of, of the folks in our audience. I get the vibe that you feel college is an absolute mess in terms of how it prepares people for, for the real world. <laughs> That's been another interesting arc for me. Like when I graduated from college and especially when I started this business, I was super anti-college. But in thinking about it more, I do think that there's a lot of value in certain aspects of, of college and the education system. Like some of my best friends I met in college and, and the social education that I got was fantastic. That is a great benefit. But I think that, you know, when you look at the cost associated with getting that, I think that that is really hard to back into from an ROI standpoint, especially if you're looking at taking out significant number of loans and, and all these other things. And then also, I think that so many colleges are missing core parts of the curriculum that set people up for success. So essentially, the cost of tuition has risen significantly, you know, over the past couple of decades. But the focus on ROI for students really hasn't been there, right? Like courses I would have loved to have in college would be, what the heck is a credit score and how do you manage it? Or how do you rent an apartment, especially in a place like New York, where there's like all this crazy stuff you have to do that you never thought of before? Or how do you actually network? When I graduated, networking to me was like, let me go to this meetup or let me go to this happy hour sponsored by this corporation or this career fair. And now networking to me is, you know, okay, like I see Dan's doing cool stuff. He's got a podcast. Let me leave a review on the podcast. Then let me reach out and tell him I really enjoyed this tidbit of this segment of this episode with this person. And let me build that relationship up because I've been following Dan for a while. And I know that this is somebody that I want to have in my network. So very different from what we're taught in school. And so I just think that school in general or, or universities in general are doing a disservice to their students and the fact that they are just ramping up these prices and then not really creating the value to follow that, especially as it relates to, you know, the ROI that, that you can generate in the real world from what you get in school. So that's the big gripe that I have, but I also do see value in a four-year education. And I also think we're really lucky in the US, like a lot of other countries force their kids to focus into one area from a much earlier age than we do. So we actually do have a bit of that luxury, but unfortunately it costs like however many, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a year now to, to buy that. There's a lot of what you just mentioned, which I would completely agree with as it relates to college. I think it's funny because I think a lot of people forget that like college at the end of the day, it is a product, right? It's a business and someone selling you. And the narrative is very much like you need this to go on with your life and be successful regardless of however much debt this thing may put you back. It's actually one of the only things I think where it's like the debt is like somewhat, it's accepted as like the norm, right? Totally. There's definitely people who talk about it, but I think a lot of people don't blink an eye around how much debt they have to go into to pay for college. If you'd looked at that as just, let's say, hey, you're going to go in and buy a business. A lot of people wouldn't do that. Oh, absolutely. If you took out a $5,000 loan to start a business, family, friends would like freak out. They'd be like, yeah, they'd be like what, what are nuts. you doing? You're throwing this <laughs> money away. But then at the same time, you have like, a, I think the average, the most recent stat I can remember is like 36, 37 grand. Like that's what people are taking out and that's what they're leaving with on graduation. And yeah, nobody bats an eye. It's like, you did it. It's like, we're celebrating that versus the $5,000 loan is being vilified. It's such a strange setup. And it's also funny, like the whole parents, friends, like, a lot of that comes from protection, right? Like they don't want to see us in a bad place. And pretty much everything worth doing in life requires you to take a bit of a risk and bet on yourself. 
I was writing some some content earlier, and one of the things I came up with in a comment to somebody else was that if you don't take risks now, you create this kind of facade of safety, and it feels good now. But basically, what you're doing is kind of guaranteeing living with regret later. And I think that's really, really tough. And that's something that not a lot of people think ahead to. And everything worth doing requires a bit of a risk. Like if you're not willing to take a risk, and you're just doing the status quo, like, you can't do the average and expect above average returns. That's just like not the way that life works. That's something that a lot of people either don't want to grapple with or haven't grappled with. And the funny thing is all these people telling us that that $5,000 loan is crazy. Many of them had to take risks to get to where they are. If a parent, you know, is working in a certain job or has their own business or whatever, like they have taken risks in their own life. But we kind of fail to remember that when we're talking to other people, especially people who we really care about and who are close to us, we kind of want to protect them. And therefore, we kind of shove aside the risk that we took and, and go into this like parental mode or, or whatever you want to call it. It's a really interesting thing. And that's one of the biggest things we have to teach our students is that or our clients is that, look, you may have gone to these people for advice your, your entire life, but now we're at a point where your parents haven't job searched in however long, your friends may be in totally different industries, totally different majors, whatever it is, their advice may not be as relevant to you. So the best thing that you can do is go seek out somebody who has already walked the specific path that you're looking to go down and network with them and learn from them. That's a really, really tough thing for people to unlearn. But when they do, that's really where you start to see a lot of the magic happen. <laughs> yeah, I'm laughing at while you say that because I literally just had this conversation with someone the other day around the people who we seek advice from or approval from is so important because in the past, I've turned to family or close friends. And in hindsight, when I look back on those moments, I'm like, they're not the best person to speak about business because they've never owned a business. They've never built a business. They're giving me advice from their perspective. But like, in terms of their advice, I, I should have the lowest amount of weight, um, you know, in terms of what they're saying, even though like they love me, it's coming from a good place. It's funny you bring that up. I completely agree with you. We're very much on the same page there. I want to shift a little bit to talk about the core of what you do. How do people land jobs without applying online? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the, uh, the million dollar question, right? So basically, what turned me on to this were, were two things. One is in relation to what we just talked about, where you know I'd gone through the traditional process. I applied to 300 jobs in two months. I got no interviews from those online applications obviously no no offers. And I was having coffee with somebody who went to the same school that I did, Wake Forest. And uh, he worked at Uber at the time. And he was the one who basically told me what we were just talking about, which is that I was basically taking advice from the wrong people. And if I wanted to make this happen, I needed to go find folks who had already walked the path that I was, I was trying to walk. So people who had come from a non-traditional background and were now working at a Microsoft, a Google, et cetera, so that was the first big realization. The second big realization was, was looking at the data because after submitting 300 online apps, you kind of wonder if you're a little crazy and you do some, some Googling and you see what comes up. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And essentially what the data tells us is that when you apply for a job online, the average open role gets 250, 300 applications. And that's the average, right? So that's including everybody from the mom and pop business down the street to Google. And Google was getting 50,000 resumes a week at a certain point a couple of years ago. So you really you know, have a, a broad spectrum there. And as you go up in company caliber, which you can argue the caliber of these different companies, but you know, I think Google is widely considered to be at the top, Google, Microsoft, these types of places, you're getting tons of applications for each role. So your chances of getting in the door at an average company with those 250 to 300 online apps is less than 2% when you do the math through the full funnel. Then you increase the number of apps to thousands per role and, and it's even smaller. So the kicker is that 75% of people, uh, according LinkedIn did this whole survey, and they found that 75% of people are using online apps as their primary method to job search. So when you look at that, you have the vast majority of the applicant pool, your competition is all buying into this system that only has a 2% success rate at best. So if that's the case, though, like the next question is, where are these hires coming from? So if you go dig deeper into the data, what you find is that referrals actually make up 40 to 80 percent of hires, depending on you know, the data you look at, depending on the company, the industry, the hiring manager, all that stuff. But even at minimum, 40, significantly higher than 2 percent. And only 10 percent of applicants are coming through that channel. So you talk about like a blue ocean setup, like if you focus your energy on referrals, you're only competing with 10% of the market for a 40% chance of being hired compared to competing with 75% of the market with a 2% chance of just getting in the door for a conversation, like not even an offer. And so that was really illuminating to me. So between those two things, I decided that I was going to build out a brand new strategy that essentially only focused on building relationships and generating referrals, and then also finding creative ways to showcase my value because it became abundantly clear to me as a career changer that nobody was looking at my resume and saying, yeah, like we're going to take a chance on this person and cross our fingers and hope that it works out. So I had to find different ways to, to showcase my value. And, and I came up with a strategy I call value validation project, which we can talk about if you want, but essentially that was the basis for the system. And then I just made it like my full-time job to essentially understand how to become really good at relationship building and understand what companies were looking for in the hiring process. And through that, I came up with this whole system that allowed me to target people at the companies that I wanted to work for in the roles that I wanted to work in, build relationships with them, understand you know their goals, challenges, frustrations, all these things, create deliverables that spoke directly to those challenges and goals and, and things of that nature, and then leverage that as enough of a value illustration to earn a referral and get in the door and then eventually get hired. So that's the basis of the system here that we we teach everybody now. So it sounds like a lot of the focus is, and you tell me if I'm, if I'm hitting the nail on the head or completely off here, <laughs> sounds like a lot of the focus is 
getting a referral or getting your foot in the door through someone that already works there who can refer you, who can vouch for you, and then providing some level of value to them, whether it be through like a project or some way that you show or highlight or showcase, you know, like I can be a value add to the overall team here. Look at me, look at me. (laughs) That's kind of like what you're going for. That's exactly it. So obviously like in a small company, right? Let's just say less than 50 people. It's pretty easy to get in touch with like probably 50 people. There's already someone who was working within HR, but it's easy to contact like the CEO or a co-founder and let them know that you like what they're doing or send them some way to highlight like, hey, these are some ideas or these are some ways I can bring you value. As you get into like a Google or an Uber or Twitter, you know, these huge companies, it's hard to maybe get in touch with like a high up executive, but it's, I'm assuming it's fairly easy to go about. I mean, I'm sure they're bombarded too, but like someone in HR or someone who, let's say you wanted a sales job, it's easier to reach out to like the VP of sales or someone like that. Is that normally like the strategy that you would go about it? Yeah. So the way that we think about this is kind of like a, a set of concentric rings. If you're talking startup, right, less than 50 people, like you said, at that point, so, you know, some CEOs are still involved in hiring, some aren't, or, or C-level executives, some aren't. But, you know, it still behooves you to try to connect with the C-level person at a smaller company just because they, they do have a lot of influence. But as you get to these larger companies, you don't necessarily have to connect with a VP or even a director unless that's, you know, somebody who's going to have a, a direct influence on the role that you're being hired for. But, for example, let's say that you want to get a job as, you know, a, a senior account executive, for example. Well, you know, who's going to be the, the hiring manager for that type of role? I guess in this case, it may be an account director or somebody along those lines, like kind of an M1 level manager, if you think about it, that might be the best shot. But then also you have all these people who are going to be your colleagues and peers, right? Who are also senior account executives. So basically what I'm getting at is regardless of the role that you're targeting, the best people that you can focus on are folks who have a potential to be the hiring manager and also folks who would potentially be a peer or colleague because those people are going to be the ones interviewing you. Those people are going to be the ones sitting in the room where the hiring decision is being made. And if you can get an advocate or two in that pool, that's going to go a very long way. And then you kind of build out from there, right? So the next circle is people who work in the same org, right? We may not work on the exact same team, but I may work in the same role on another team. And therefore I'm still, you know, I still know these other people. And then it could be somebody at the company who, you know, even if I don't know anybody in that department or whatever, if I turn this person into an advocate and they really get to know my story, you know, an email from them to the hiring manager saying something like, hey, you know, I know you're hiring for this open role. I've been talking to Dan. He is amazing for X, Y, and Z reasons. And I know you're trying to solve for this challenge. And I think he can help for this specific reason over here. I'd highly recommend that you talk to him. Most hiring managers are not going to ignore an email like that, but you're also only going to get somebody to send an email like that if they are a true advocate and not just like a random one and done referral. So really what it comes down to is this balance of finding somebody that you can turn into an advocate, which requires a certain level of depth in the relationship. And then balancing that with proximity to the role and trying to get as close as you possibly can. The way that we kind of handle that is we, we just recommend that people go find 15 contacts at each target company. So you can have, you know, a couple of folks who are on the team. You can have a couple of folks who are adjacent and then a couple of folks who you just have really easy inroads with potentially and still fill out your 15 and feel really comfortable about that list. That makes a lot of sense. I want to dive a little bit further into that. Just before we do, I'm curious, 
if people come to you and they say like, this is my dream job, but they don't get it. What's like your personal take? Do you believe that like there is a dream job or do you think that applying for jobs, it's kind of like you need, it is a numbers game. Let's say you wanted to work at Microsoft. Maybe you don't get accepted. You don't get a job there for X, Y, Z reason. Do you do the coaching to say, hey, like, I understand that it's your dream job and I'm sorry that you didn't get it, but these are the other opportunities that we should go for. I'm curious, like, just what your whole take is on that, because I'm always interested when people are like, become hyper fascinated with a job on paper, you know, like they don't work there yet. So they have no idea about the culture, the people, the environment, even the role, just right what they see on the role opportunity. And then, you know, they don't get the job and they're extremely disappointed. But sometimes in my perspective, I'm like, you know, you don't even know what was beyond that door because you didn't live it, right? Definitely. And the way that we handle this is is we actually teach people and coach people to shift away from a dream job being rooted in a job title at a certain company because that that's not really what makes people happy. Like you could go work, let's say my dream job is, you know, UX designer at Google, but I get that job and my boss is a jerk and the culture of my team is work around the clock and I'm slightly underpaid compared to the market. And I said, yes, because I wanted to work at Google and all these other things. Like, are you happy? Probably not. So how do we get away from that? Well, basically a dream job is going to be something that delivers against a certain lifestyle that you've designed for yourself, not necessarily a a title at a company. And of course, you know, there are certain companies that are more conducive to these types of things. And that's part of the work. But basically what we do with people is we try to have them sit down and envision, you know, what that that dream life looks like. So it's where are you living? Like, what does your house or apartment look like? How often do you go on vacation or do, you know, X other things? What kind of hobbies do you have? How much money are you making? Who's in your circle? Who are you interacting with? What are you learning? What are you excited about? Like all that stuff. And then we try to back that into specific buckets of, you know, like just to make it a little bit more simplified. And then we teach people how to do the research to identify those things in target companies. And so now it's less about, I want this job because it's the job title I want at a company that is the caliber that I'm excited about. And it's instead, I want this job because I have done my due diligence and I know that their values and the way that they approach work and the growth trajectory and the salary and the culture fully align is a bit of a jackpot scenario, but you know, aligns 80% with the things that I have mapped out for myself. And once people have that realization, it's really freeing because of exactly what you said, we're no longer shackled to this one role at this one company that we, we think is the be all end all of our career. And we realize just how many roles are out there that fulfill what we're looking for. And it's interesting because I know a ton of people who work at these top tier household name companies that everybody wants to work for, who are just totally miserable. And I also know people who are working for these smaller early stage startups who are making bank and have pretty decent work-life balance, all things considered, and have a great setup and are super happy. And the reason that those people are happy and the others are not is because they took the time to do this reflection, whether it's, you know, through our system or through, you know, their, their own system that they kind of built out on their own. But that's really what it comes down to. And it's so important to set the expectations with job seekers that a lot of this process is out of our control. And so if, if it's just about one role at one company, I think you're kind of setting yourself up for disappointment. Whereas if we give ourselves a slightly larger scope, so for us, every new client, we have them build out a list of 15 target companies. 
And about three to five of those are those dream companies. But then we also have five to eight, what we consider to be stepping stone companies, which are basically like companies that will give you the experience that you need without you having to sacrifice comp culture, any of this stuff in order to then make that next jump into a dream company. And then we have sandbox companies, which are basically companies that you can practice some of our strategies on in a low stakes environment. That's the setup that we have. And that is narrow enough where we're not telling people, you know, hey, you have to settle for a job anywhere. But it's also broad enough that we have a whole bunch of roles and opportunities that we would feel great about saying yes to. And that just increases our service area for success. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was going to say, you know, a lot of what it sounds like you do is you help people get their foot in the door. But, you know, you have no control over if the recruiter or the HR manager says yes. And I love when people are like, it's a really competitive job market now. I feel like it's always (laughs) a very competitive job market. And there's always a million people fighting for the same job. And you need to do whatever you can to to stand out, to differentiate yourself from the pack. I think it's funny. And you know, since a lot of what you do focuses around getting that referral in place, I'm very curious to get your take on this. But I, I feel a lot of people, I always find it funny when they, and I'm sure you hear this a lot, but a lot of people say, I've applied to a million jobs. I've messaged a million people on LinkedIn and I've heard from nobody. <laughs> Obviously, you have a tremendous following on LinkedIn. A lot of people don't even read their LinkedIn messages. At least this is my experience. Totally. Like People will re- reply to an email if it's personalized, if it is made for that person and it's not like a template. You took your time to go out of your way to make an email to connect with someone, to build a relationship. A lot of people think that just by messaging someone on LinkedIn, you know, like I've done my part in trying to stand out. I messaged that person, but no one answers. I'm curious if you could speak a little bit to how you actually go about building a meaningful relationship online, virtually, because I think a lot of people think that they're making attempts, but really they're doing like the bare minimum and they're barely even scratching the surface as it relates to what they actually need to be doing to build a relationship online. Definitely. And it's always funny, like what I tell all of our clients is basically like before you send a message, take a moment, read that message and and ask yourself like, if you receive this from a total stranger, like, would you reply to your own message? It's funny how often people say they wouldn't. They were just about to press send on that email. To get into your question here. So essentially, what most people miss about relationships is that they're like a bank account, specifically like a checking account. So if I want to make a $20 withdrawal from my checking account, let's say, but I don't have any money in the account, some things are going to happen. First, I'm not going to be able to get my money. So the thing that I want, I'm not going to be able to basically make the transaction that I want to make. Second, you know, the bank is going to charge me an overdraft fee. So there's some consequences there. And then if I keep doing this enough at the same bank, the bank's probably going to cancel my account and tell me to go take a hike because they're sick of dealing with my problems. Same thing with relationships. If I show up to a relationship that I've invested no social capital in, deposited no social capital in, And I try to make a withdrawal from that relationship in the form of asking for a referral, asking for a 30-minute pick-your-brain conversation, asking for anything of that nature. I'm probably not going to get what I want. And I run the risk of being charged that fee in the sense of rubbing people the wrong way. And then if I send that same thing to everybody at the company, well, all of a sudden, all these people at the same company in these roles I want to work at, they don't want to talk to me because I engage with them in the wrong way. And that may sound like we're putting a lot of pressure on this, but really, What it comes down to is we have to make deposits in a relationship before we make a withdrawal. And so the best relationships I found, people make the mistake of thinking that networking is like one 30-minute Zoom call. So like we get on a 30-minute Zoom call, 
we chat about your career or whatever and like boom that's networking and now like they either end up in one of two camps they either expect that like a referral should manifest itself or they have no idea where the heck to go next because they're like okay i talked about everything that i wanted to talk about like what do i do from here so that's actually not how we see the best relationships unfold typically the best relationships are built in small consistent layers of value and so if we want to make that happen we need to understand what the other person values and that creates some additional buckets here we're gonna we're like you know going down the the branches of the universe but uh basically for the two types of people that are online you have people who have an active online presence and you have people who don't for the people with an online active presence those folks are really easy to engage with because they're putting themselves out there so they have a podcast they create content on linkedin they create content on twitter they have a personal blog they have some sort of presence where they're actively creating and that's awesome because you can, you know, if somebody's got a podcast, you know, maybe you leave them a review. And then, like I said, you know, you tell them you really enjoyed this snippet with this person and maybe they share a piece of advice in a podcast and you go take action on it and report back to them. And all of a sudden we have three layers of value that we've used to warm up the relationship. But then we also have folks who have no online presence and we kind of have to figure out what to do with those people. So the best thing that we can do is some research and try to understand, you know, what angle we might be able to leverage. So for example, if we can find people who, have a non-traditional background, made a career change. You know, that could be something that we dial into. We could find people who are experts in their field and, and we could ask them for a very small piece of actionable advice, not what's everything you did to get to the place that you are now, but more specifically, like, I admire your experience. You've done amazing work. I'm thinking about, you know, taking this course or starting this project, you know, which one of these two things would you recommend? Like you only have to reply with A or B. We just would need to get creative about understanding who they are, what they care about, what they're interested in, and playing into that. And then the biggest thing is understanding that we're playing a little bit of a longer game here. So we're, we're looking to have three or four touch points and hopefully add value through those touch points before we make any sort of ask on our side. And the beautiful part about the internet is that there's so much information available to us. We can learn so much about a person that really what it comes down to it doesn't have anything to do with your innate ability to build relationships. And it doesn't have anything to do with like being a great networker. What it really comes down to is the willingness to roll up your sleeves and research somebody and take, you know, an extra 10 minutes to think about like, what does this person care about? What could I send them where they would be excited to read that email and they would be excited to reply to that email and then practicing that. Right. And that's why actually why we have that set up sandbox stepping stone stretch company is what we call it or dream company. But if you start with the sandbox, you can go just try a whole bunch of stuff, throw a bunch of crap up against the wall and start to see what sticks. And then as you move up the priority list, you're going to get more and more data around what's working for you and what isn't. And then you can double down on the things that are. So that's kind of our philosophy and, and a couple of actionable things in a nutshell, but also totally happy to go deeper if, if that's helpful. That all makes complete sense. What would you say is, as it relates to securing a job, what would you say is a wildly held belief that you would reject? That's a great question. The biggest thing is that all you need is a great resume to get a job. I disagree with that on so many levels. And a lot of job seekers think that's the case. And the reason I disagree with it is because a resume is really geared towards that traditional process that we've been talking about. So that means that you're over-indexing in that process if you feel that a resume is such an important part of the job search. And that means you're probably not getting the results that you want. The other reason that that's a really bad belief to hold is because resumes are frankly a pretty terrible way to sell anything. 
I've always viewed the job search as a sales process. One of the reasons I think my advice has been able to you know, work so well is that I come from a sales background and all I really do is I take sales and marketing principles and I just put them in the context of the job search. And so, you know, when we teach people how to write great resume bullets, we teach them copywriting skills. You know, when we teach people how to network with folks, we teach them cold outreach and prospecting skills. Like all we're really doing is turning people into salespeople and marketers where they are the product, their labor is the product and they're selling it to, you know, the prospect, which is the company. So nobody sells themselves in any industry or area or capacity outside of job searching on something like a resume because resumes focus on all the wrong things. They only focus on you. They don't let you focus on the person you're selling to. They also only focus on past value created instead of potential future value. And they are written in this language that like nobody freaking uses anywhere else in life, right? And it's so freaking hard to understand. Like the jargon that's in there is crazy and nobody ever uses that to sell ideas anywhere else. So for all of those reasons, this document is such a terrible way to sell your experience that if you believe it's the only thing you need to, to get a great job, you're going to run into a lot of frustration and, and you're probably going to end up settling for results that are below what you'd expected. Yeah, that's funny. I've never even thought about that, how crazy the language is on a resume or how it's supposed to be. No one talks like that. Yeah. And it's hard because like as a job seeker, we're not fluent in that language, right? But then also the hiring managers aren't fluent in that language either. Like a software engineering hiring manager or a sales hiring manager, like any hiring manager that isn't in HR, their job isn't to read resumes. It's to build software. It's to sell. It's to market. It's to do all these other things. So you run into an issue where both parties are not fluent in this language, but they're trying to communicate in it. And I kind of liken it, you know, you're in New York and I spent some time in New York, lived there for a while. If you go to like any bar in New York, it's not unreasonable to find two people from very different places talking to each other. And maybe one person is from, let's say, Japan and their first language is Japanese. And then somebody else is from, you know, Spain and their, their first language is Spanish. But the common language is English. And, you know, depending on their, their level of fluency, like stuff is going to bound to be lost in translation because both parties are speaking their second language, which is not their native language. Same with the resume, like the job seeker and the hiring manager are communicating in this language that is very foreign to both of them. And so, of course, value is not going to be recognized. Of course, things are going to fall through the, the cracks or be taken in the wrong context. And so that piece is something that, you know, I have some feelings for. It's one of the reasons why resumes are, are really frustrating for folks. What are your thoughts of people who do, or not of people, but of, of the strategy of going about doing a creative resume, right? Like I've seen people, I saw recently, one guy, John, posted uh, his old resume when he got a job at Google, and he, he made like his resume as if it was a Google search. What are your thoughts, people who get creative and do, do something like that to stand out? Yeah, so I, I think that that can work, but I also think that we don't know the full context of those situations, right? And so if John did that, got hired because, or, or got in the door because like he had that creative resume, but then got a referral and the referral saw it and they could talk about it face to face. And they were like, this is awesome. Let me pass it along. And, and then that referral did what we talked about earlier, sends John resume along with a note talking about how great John is like, well, now all of a sudden, like, yeah, the resume is cool. And that's like icing on the cake. But really, we got in the door here because of that referral and because of the plus one from the employee. Not saying that's the case in John's situation. I have no idea. 
But oftentimes we see like these cool resumes and we think like, again, we fall into the trap of like, oh, well, if I had a cool resume, I'd get all the jobs I want. And that's not necessarily true. In addition to that, you kind of run the risk of losing out on a bunch of opportunities because of some of the systems that these companies use. So behind the scenes of uh, many companies, I think the most recent stat I saw was like 98% of Fortune 500 companies use these applicant tracking systems. That's what they're called. But if you submit an application, basically what happens is the ATS kind of parses that application and resume and makes it searchable for recruiters. So recruiters can type in keywords and you know filter by skills and do all these. There's 200 different ATS systems out there. They all work differently. So the features vary, but essentially if your resume isn't parsable, you run into some issues of potentially being overlooked because it's not gonna show up in their searches or the, the systems and processes that they're using to make their job easier. And a lot of these ATS systems uh, have pretty poor parsers. Uh, so that's one thing we have to keep in mind as well. So for me, what I actually do instead is rather than investing all that time in a creative resume, I actually use it to put together a, a short pitch deck. So this is that value validation project piece that I mentioned earlier. But essentially, you know, at the end of the day, companies don't really care about what you've done in the past. They do in the context of trying to predict future value for themselves. But as we just talked about, like resumes and, and stuff that you've done in the past is, is not the best way to do that. Instead, if somebody showed up on their doorstep and said, hey, I've researched your company. I know what your problems are. Here are three potential solutions. Here's how I would implement them. And here's my past experience to show why I am qualified to implement them. That's much, much more compelling than a document that's just a list of all the stuff you've done and you hope that people connect the dots. That makes a lot of sense. So that's exactly what I started doing. And I actually picked this up because I did a lot of freelancing when I was changing industries because I had to basically figure out a way to build skills because nobody was willing to take a chance on me. Freelancing was a whole different beast that I had to figure out because there were a bunch of other people who had more experience. So one of the things I would do is I would just basically give companies insights and strategies and ideas for free and say, look, you know, other people will charge you for this stuff here it is for free. And if you don't want to deal with implementing it, I'll do that for you and just pay me. And then I'll come up with other ideas for you. And that worked really well. And so it was the same kind of situation in the job search, like transfer of that strategy to the job search was easy because I'm looking at all of these things that companies are using to gauge employee credentials and qualification and, and value. And none of them are the most obvious choice for doing that, which is just showing the company exactly what you can do. So what I did for all, like when I interviewed at Twitter back in the day, this was when they were really struggling to monetize back in like, I interviewed with them in 2015. I just came up with five different ways that they could use to monetize their existing audience without spending a dime on ads or, you know, any of these other like more obvious solutions. And I brought that with me to my interview. Same with Google, like Google kept coming back to me and saying, you don't have enough sales experience. And so I put together a whole pitch deck and said, let me, let me show you exactly how I would pitch your products to a small business. Cause that's exactly what I did in my freelancing. Like I used Google ads to drive leads to small businesses. And that's the role that I would have been stepping into in Google. So I was like, let me put together this whole pitch deck and show you. And then same at Microsoft. Like we talked through all these ideas for how it was the same, same type of role at Microsoft. We talked through how all of these ideas that were based on, I actually went and surveyed some of my clients at the time it was Bing ads, now Microsoft ads. And I got a whole bunch of data and brought that to Microsoft. And so all of my interviews and conversations ended up being focused on these ideas. 
that meant that they were less focused on the fact that I didn't have a traditional background, but also less focused on the stuff that I'd done in the past because the ideas that I came up with, the value that I brought to the table, if somebody comes to you with a good business idea, like, you know, your business, you know, if it's a good idea or not, like off the bat. So if somebody comes to the table with a good idea, you want to discuss that idea. Like if you tell me like, Hey, Austin, here's a way that you can add million dollars in annual run rate. And this is exactly how you do it. In my head, I'm like, that could actually work for my business. I'm not going to be like, you know what, Dan, let's ignore that. And let's talk about your background. Why would I care about that? I'm going to go right to the thing that can make me an extra million dollars a year. So it's the same with these companies. If we do a little bit of research, if we identify their challenges, maybe do some competitive analyses, gather this information, understand, like I just said, challenges, goals, initiatives, where they're going the next six to 12 months, come up with some really tangible ideas for how we might be able to impact their business and put that into a five to seven slide deck and then lead with that. That's pretty, pretty tough to ignore. And it's also something that nobody else is doing. Yeah, absolutely. There are so many bits of gold in this one as it relates to landing your dream job, how to go about actually getting in the door to get that opportunity to pitch yourself and hopefully get that job that you really want. This has been a great one. Where can people connect with you, find you, follow you, and uh, learn more if they want to work with you or take your course? Yeah, for sure. So I post daily on, on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, so you can just search for my name on, on either of those platforms. I have my own podcast. It's called the Dream Job System Podcast. And it's basically three times a week. I dive into a lot of the stuff we talked about and I try to make it as actionable as possible. All the episodes are less than 15 minutes. And then of course, our website, cultivatedculture.com has basically all the information you could want. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Of course, Dan. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. All the links for this episode can be found in the show notes. Let me know your favorite bit of gold from this episode. I want to hear from you. Shoot me a message on Instagram at Dan Lev Goldberg or at the Bits of Gold podcast. That's all for today. Thanks for living with purpose today and every day, and I'll see you next week. I love your podcast. This is gold. This is where it's at.